Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to get our show started today by welcoming welcoming Timothy Santon. He is a uh, contributor to Young Voices. And Timothy, I'm going to ask you, tell our audience just a little bit about yourself. Well, I am a, first of all, uh, thank you for having me on your show. Uh, I am an international journalist uh, currently based in sunny Tuscany in Italy. Uh, so quite far from uh, Idaho, but uh, I will be in London very soon, and I am a contributor for Young Voices UK. Well, I, I'm glad that we have you on board today to talk about some of the global goings-on, because frankly, there's a lot taking place. I'm looking at an article that you wrote for thespectator.com.au, China and Russia's hypocritical foreign policy. Now, Russia really is kind of hogging the spotlight right now, but talk to me about uh, a little bit about this article and what prompted you to, to write about China and Russia. I know this was written before Russia actually moved forward with invading Ukraine, but um, well, you say there's, there's kind of a, a weird partnership between these two countries. There is. Uh, I wrote this subject, uh, I wrote this article when Russia was massing its forces on the border, on the borders of Ukraine. And I thought that something needed to be written about uh, China and Russia's uh, hypocritical foreign policy, uh, since they never seem to miss an opportunity to accuse the West of our hypocrisy. Um, you notice that whenever uh, America or the NATO alliance tries to condemn Russian or Chinese aggression abroad, uh, we are always met with accusations of hypocrisy and uh, sort of slothful moral equivalence between what we do and what they do. And so they always uh, suggest that we don't have the right to uh, condemn their actions because we are uh, hypocritical in our foreign policy. I thought that uh, uh, this is, uh, I thought at the beginning of the Olympics and the release of this joint statement on the part of Russia and China, where they essentially lay out this point of view, would be a good, good opportunity for me to uh, explain why I think that Russia and China's foreign policy is hypocritical. I thought that someone should do that for a change. So, Beyond their, their criticism of the West or they're their trying to point out uh, hypocrisies in the West, what exactly was this, uh, this joint statement between these two countries supposed to accomplish? Well, it was uh, uh, released, uh, it was published um, at the beginning of the uh, Chinese uh, Olympics, and it was supposed to lay out uh, uh, essentially what the two countries uh, perceived to be the main threats to international order in the 21st century. Uh, and uh, these are, according to them, uh, uh, and I quote, uh, uh, those on the part of some actors representing but the minority on an international scale who continue to advocate unilateral approaches to addressing international issues and resort to force, interfere in the internal, internal affairs of other states and infringe their legitimate rights and interests. So it's supposed to be an attempt to condemn Western foreign policy uh, and to uh, lay out what China and Russia perceive to be uh, 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 what they think should be the appropriate 
uh, relation among nations, which is one of mutual uh, sort of minding uh, of people's own uh, minding of our own business, even when states like Russia and China and North Korea and Iran commit gross violations of human rights. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm kind of pushing back a little bit here, and I, and I say this as an American who very much loves his country, but there is, I believe there is some truth to the interfering in other nations. Now, um, to date, I am not aware of them interfering in Russia or China's internal affairs, but it seems that the U.S. has inserted itself into a number of different countries, sometimes with less than, than favorable results. And I, I'm not saying that this automatically means that everything China and Russia are asserting is true, but I also think that they're not entirely in the wrong. How might you answer that? Well, I do think that uh, um, the U.S. has, um, in its foreign policy, it has uh, destabilized uh, countries. I mean, I could point to Libya and Iraq. But I think that we have to distinguish the attempts on the part of the West to remove dictatorships and, and install a democracy and uh, countries which seek to stifle democracy in favor of dictatorship. I think that's a very important distinction to make when we talk about international affairs. Uh, uh, Iraq, the, the intervention in Iraq, for example, on the part of the U.S.-led uh, uh, Western alliance was uh, not perfect, but today, Iraq is a um, federal democracy, uh, an imperfect one, a corrupt one. But it's a lot better than what it was under Saddam Hussein. At least that's what, that's what I think. Uh, some people don't share that view, but that's, that's what I think. Uh, and that is very different to, say, China, who, um, uh, whose government has consistently supported the military junta in Sudan uh, over the past 30 years. Uh, which has been committing gross violations uh, of human rights, massacring its people um, and destabilizing the Red Sea region. It has supported North Korea, which is one of the worst regimes uh, uh, in existence today, uh, and, always, uh, is, and is always there to provide diplomatic cover uh, uh, in the UN and other forums whenever the West tries to uh, hem it in. Uh, and it has also supported the uh, military junta in Berber, another country in its so-called adjacent region, and has done almost nothing to uh, try and uh, placate the unrest which has been uh, going on in that country uh, since the coup last year. So um, I think they're two very different uh, uh, foreign policies. Talk to me about uh, China and Russia's cooperation, uh, particularly since Russia has invaded Ukraine. And, of course, there have been sanctions that have been levied and, and uh, the inter international opinion in, in many countries, though not all, has uh, uh, aligned against Russia. It appears that Russia and China and a number of other uh, countries have come together in terms of uh, perhaps a chance to unseat the uh, petrodollar, you know, in, in terms of how oil is sold. It looks like they're both uh, making moves to have some kind of a, a different currency than the dollar is the world reserve currency. Does this cooperation threaten the West or is, is, is it time for a unipolar world under, you know, the United States hegemony? Is it time for it to, to come to a close? Well, I think it has already, um, unfortunately. 
because of a, an American foreign policy um, which has um, which began, I think, under the Obama administration, uh, which uh, sought to project an image of America as a less interventionist and less um, uh, unilateral uh, power in the world. Now, uh, of course, the consequence of this is uh, that uh, other powers rise, such as China. And I think the reason why China uh, has not uh, condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine is precisely the, for this reason. It's because it is aware that it is the only uh, uh, viable uh, alternative to a U.S.-led order. And uh, by... Uh, not uh, uh, joining uh, the West in isolating Russia, it is able to uh, bring it on its side and uh, bind it to its own uh, economy. Uh, and in doing so, it can strengthen its position in the international order uh, as a, a real uh, uh, imperial rival to the US, though an empire which has very different principles to United States. We've we got about one minute left here, but I'd like to ask you, um, maybe I'm engaging in moral equivalence here. I'm having a hard time seeing good guys, even among you know the West and, and its best intentions. It seems like when, when interventionism becomes the driving force, that there's always unintended consequences. And I wouldn't put my trust in China or in Russia, but I'm not sure that I want to put it in U.S. foreign policy either, given what we've witnessed over the last 50, 60 years. Well, I think for me, it's uh, everything has to do with the alternative. So if America retreats from the world, it's not as though you have a collection of independent states um, orderly going about their business and sort of refraining from intervening in, in the business of others. What you have is a power play between uh, other uh, empires, other uh, major uh, uh, forces in the world, uh, which will always uh, attempt to uh, win against uh, their own uh, rival in order to assert their interests. So it depends what, what you want in the world. If you want an American-led order uh, or if you want a, a, a chaos of alternative uh, powers competing for their interests. Okay, we are unfortunately up against the clock. Timothy Santon is a Young Voices contributor. Timothy, where can people find you on social media? Oh, they can find me at Twitter, uh, at Timothy Santon, uh, and that's about it, really. Uh, you'll find everything there. I have my website there as well. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we are pleased to welcome back to the show Augustin Forzani. He is a Young Voices contributor and... Augustin, for those who are meeting you for the very first time, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, I am Augustin Forsani. I am 29 years old. Um, I am from Argentina. I recently graduated from uh, George Mason University last year. Um, I got uh, my master's in economics there. Um, and I am a former Mercatus Center fellow. Um, I was doing research there last year. And right now I am a current um, Young Voices Fellow, uh, writing um, like different topics. Like um, I write about monetary policy, public policy, 
and uh, as in this uh, article that we are going to discuss, um, uh, like defense, the defense sector. Okay, yeah, I'm looking at an article here on internationalpolicydigest.org, and I have to admit, this is very timely. The title is, The U.S. Should Be Careful About Increasing Defense Spending. Well, since Russia has invaded Ukraine, of course, uh, I, the, the the conventional wisdom is saying there must be cheering in the boardrooms at Raytheon and and some of the, the you know, uh, the armament companies. But uh, talk to me about uh, why this is a time for caution in increasing defense spending as opposed to just throwing caution to the wind and spending as much as, as the Pentagon may say is necessary. Well, um what I tried to do in the article is to uh, show that there are some uh, costs uh, associated with increasing defense spending because I, I, mean, I mean I know that the Russia Russia's inv- invasion in in Ukraine is a, is a threat to the world and it's it's problematic and also you have uh, China there um, with uh, you know Taiwan um, but. The sentiment is, I mean, increasing in the public and in Capitol, on Capitol Hill um, about increasing defense spending because of these new threats that are uh, appearing in the world. Um, but it's not right now, but it's always. You, you should be careful about increasing defense spending because there are other costs associated with that that normally are overlooked. Um, either like both by the public and by by Congress, uh, I would say Congress is more uh, prone to increase um, um, defense spending. But yeah, the public, the public should be aware of the problems as well. You know, ever since uh, September 11th, 2001, it seems like uh, there's been great emphasis on, look, we have to pass every spending bill. This is essential to keeping us safe. Um, could you give me some of the the unintended consequences that may come from spending more on defense than is necessary? What are some of the dangers that people might not see immediately? Well, there are many, but I try to list uh, two that I consider the most important. Um, uh, so in the article, so you have, uh, for in one part, you have a problem with rent seeking in the different sector because uh, the defense sector, the, um, the rules of the game of the defense sectors are, di- are, are different than the rules of the game, the game of the market. Um, defense companies are contractors of the government, so they don't engage in you know, price and quality competition as in the market, uh, looking for uh, consumers. So they, they just sell their products to the government, and they, they got the process is basically you have to, I mean, the, the, the best at, at loving the, the government normally is the one that is going to get the contract for the defense contract. So you have a lot of waste in that process, in that rent-seeking process, in that loving process, that is just, it just goes away. I mean, it's not a, something, it's not, these are not resources and time that are uh, used for, Increasing the, your productivity, your uh, your quality, or or uh, improving your I mean reducing your costs. These are just uh, loving costs that are like they go away in the process, and they they don't improve the the quality of the product uh, specifically. So, and actually, the government uh, also encourages that that process because 
they like the, the government is eager to get the 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 best uh, or the biggest um uh, like defense um uh, like the biggest pro the, the, the most expensive product they are not because in the in when you are a, a bureau like like uh, bureaucrats they normally are penalized if they reduce if they reduce costs like if if you are uh, like a defense bureau and you reduce your budget next year you are going to have a reduction in your budget that's a penalty it's, i mean it's it's totally opposite with, um completely opposite uh, compared to the like the market uh, that's the first problem the rent seeking problems uh, with with um, in the different sector and then you have um the uh, a problem that i consider in, in, uh, even more important that is more more difficult to 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 uh, understand and to to see is the unseen uh, it's it's really an, an unseen effect uh, which is a distortion of the economy um all i mean resources are, are always scarce and you will have uh, lots of resources that are used in the different sector are not going to be using the in other sectors in the economy and since the different sector is prone to lobbying and and therefore less uh, um, productive than the market you will have lots of resources that are going to be used less productively um and then you have lots of distortions of the economy because you are going to increase the inputs of these products uh the the producer of these inputs are going to see the the profit opportunity and they are going to produce more of these products you're going to have a reduction uh, in the products that are more uh, uh, productive for the people for the market and we are you are going to have more less productivity in, your, in the economy and therefore you end up being much more poorer these strike me as very solid reasons that you're giving as to, to why to beware you know, spending unnecessarily on, on a defense budget. I mean, I, I get it. Some people will, will say, well, there's no cost that's too much you know, to, for, for our safety. But when you remove competition from the market, it, it, it takes away the incentive to improve the quality or to, to improve the accessibility to, to, to certain products. And, and I agree, you know, the distortion of the economy that you outlined in that second uh, concern, um, reduction in productivity and alteration of the economy is, is going to harm the people who are outside of uh, that, uh, um, the, you know, the defense contractor class, it, it, it takes resources away from their use that could be put to wiser use. Now, if I've stated that wrong, please correct me. But I, I think you've made two very, very solid arguments here. Yeah, yeah. The, these are my main arguments. Uh, um, and as I said, you have you have more problems associated with, with the defense sector. Um but yeah, I mean, the the most important thing that you have to be aware is that the whole process of defense, uh, I mean, the defense sector with the government um, is basically a process of concentrated benefits in the defense sector and the government and dispersed cost in everyone else. Um, so we are not, not only loving not only these resources but also the distortion of the economy and the, the reduction in productivity of the economy um and you you have to consider the the us is the the, the country that uh, invests uh, the most in the world uh, in in defense by far 
really by far. We are talking about um, $800 billion this year. Well, normally with Republican presidents, you have an, an increase in, in defense. Now with this problem, you, you are going to have lots of Democrats on board. Um, yep. I, I mean, it's going to be near $1 trillion in in a couple of years. Um, and there, I mean, I consider that you have to be aware of these problems before keeping it easy. Maybe it's better to improve, uh, I mean, solve these problems and then um, see if we can increase uh, defense spending. Augustin, where can people find you on social media? Where can they follow your writing? Um, they can find me uh, on Twitter. Uh, it's Agustin Forsani. Um, um, and also they can find me in the, the Young Voices uh, webpage. I have all my, my links in the, of my articles there. And we are back. This is Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Grace Bidalek back to the show. Grace, we talked a little while back, but for people who are meeting you for the first time, obviously you are a Young Voices contributor, but tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Sure. Hi, Brian. Thank you so much for having me back. Um, In addition to being a contributor for Young Voices, I'm also a performer. I'm living and working in New York City, and my passions are for musical theater and for film and TV, and I also have an album out, if you would like to give it a listen. Oh, no kidding. Hey, well, man, yeah. you, you just have lots and lots of talents. And I'm looking at an article that you wrote, uh, Blue State Governors Play Political Calvin Ball. And Grace, this one really spoke to me because I have been watching the mask mandates and, and the lifting of some and the reimposition of others, and it seems like... I don't know if dragging their heels is the right uh, you know, metaphor to use here, but tell me about some of the gamesmanship that you see and, and what you're describing in this article. Right. So just to give everyone a little bit of context, to everyone's confusion, specifically in New York, we've seen mask mandates lifted in a slew of blue states over the past few months. So we've seen it in California. We've seen it in New Jersey. We've seen it in Washington State, Oregon, Chicago, Massachusetts, and now uh, in my state of New York. And I think that there are antithetical reasons being given by people on opposite sides of the political spectrum. And it's incredibly frustrating because none of it makes any sense. Now, and you actually use a wonderful reference to Calvin and Hobbes, one of my favorite comic strips ever. Um, You refer to Calvin Ball. For people who aren't familiar with that, what exactly is Calvin Ball? Yes, absolutely. So Calvin Ball is this fantastical game made up by Calvin, Bill Watterson's fantastic uh, and childlike young character. Um, And the only rule uh, for Calvin Ball is that it's never played the same way twice. This is, this is this fantastical game. So the rules change always. (laughs) New rule, new rule, which is what we're seeing uh, in this, in this kind of flip flopping on mask mandates. So give give some examples about how these these rules are are changing uh, from state to state or even even localities within within the states that's leading to this confusion to where nobody really knows where they stand. Sure. So, I mean, specifically in New York, we're seeing um, 
mask mandates being lifted for outdoor spaces, for indoor spaces. We're seeing um, proof of vaccination being lifted for indoor spaces, but uh, still having to wear masks on the subway systems, on public transport. Um, And we're also seeing um, that children are still being masked uh, in in public schools, in preschools, um, with little to no evidence with little to no evidence uh, being provided for why these mask mandates are being lifted or why they're being held in place. I know I watched a video on Twitter last week of, uh, I, I think it's the, the mayor of New York City, um, dancing and having a fun, having fun with a lot of people all around. Nobody masked, but uh, the person who posted the video says, but the kids, the little kids are still required oh, yeah. to, to wear masks. And uh, to me, that that caused some very serious cognitive dissonance because kids are at the least risk from COVID in the first place. But are there any politicians who are giving reasonable explanations or is it just a matter of because I said so? Well, to speak to that hypocritical situation that you saw on Twitter the other week, um, we've also seen kind of a slew of hypocritical photo ops in the news in the past in the past few months. So we saw an unmasked. California, California Governor Gavin Newsom and a Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti next to a famously immunocompromised basketball player, Magic Johnson. And we saw an unmasked Stacey Abrams in a sea of smiling masked kids. So we've been seeing this and it's been a source of real frustration for Americans across the country. Now, I know that uh, you, you quote you, you quote Dr. Leanna Wen in this. And on the yeah. one hand, I want to be happy that her tune has changed a lot since the end of last year. But at the same time, I'm wondering, is is there a shift in, in the political leadership of America? The, the words that she used specifically was she said, the science has changed. And I'm scratching my head over that. What, what are you seeing? Well, we also we're not only seeing this from Leanna Wen. We're also seeing this from Anthony Fauci, who said just this week that it's going to be, quote unquote, a person's decision about the individual risks that they're going to take as far as COVID-19 goes. And we also saw it from people at the very top, including President Joe Biden in his State of the Union. So this man who once was warning the unvaccinated that they were going to face a winter of quote unquote severe illness and death said in the biggest speech of his presidency, one of the biggest speeches of his presidency to be sure, quote unquote, let's stop looking at COVID-19 as a partisan dividing line and see it for what it is, a God awful disease. Let's stop seeing each other as enemies and start seeing each other for who we really are, which is fellow Americans. And this is leaving a lot of people very confused and angry because according to CDC data and to New York City Health in New York specifically, we're seeing 4,000 new cases a day. We're seeing 1,000 new uh, hospitalizations a day. And these numbers are echoed nationwide. As far as the efficacy of masks, this has been debated since early 2020. Um, So... I write in my article that it says the available uh, officials at the Cato Institute said in November of 2021 that the available clinical evidence of face mask uh, efficacy is low and the best available clinical evidence has mostly failed to show efficacy. So we've been seeing we've been seeing this for 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 many years. The science has not changed. Unfortunately, I think what has changed is the polling for Democrats. 
Yeah, that's I. People who have tied the science to the polling, I think, are right on the money because that's <laughs> that's really where, where the measurable change was taking place. And I have fought so hard not to utter the words "told you so," but I've thought them many, many times. Um, but it seems like there are some politicians who, nonetheless, regardless of what evidence, regardless of of what consensus may form, even even in the face of bad poll numbers, still seem like they want to hold on to uh, whatever power. Uh, they they have accrued during the the pandemic. A- am I wrong right. in, in in seeing that? Is that is that something that others are seeing as well? No, I think that's definitely something that others are seeing. But unfortunately for the Democrats, now COVID has become uh, has has failed to be politically expe- expedient, um, and so now we're seeing the poll numbers change, and thus we are seeing a shift in the policy. The shift in the policy is not for you. It's because of you. Interesting. Um, just cu- out of curiosity, have you, have you been keeping tabs on the lockdown in Shanghai? And and uh, what what are your yeah. thoughts on, on uh, China locking, you know, 26 million people down as hard as you can lock a population down? It's terrifying. We haven't even seen that. We haven't seen a single death uh, from COVID that we can that we can uh, that we can pinpoint in Shanghai. And people are are pleading for food or for water. They are banging pots and pans. They're screaming out into the streets. It's, it's devastating. It's devastating. And um, I think it's just one in a long string of human rights abuses that we've seen come out of China recently. Okay, here's the big question I have for you, though. Since many politicians are playing by the rules of Calvin Ball, which essentially means they're making them up as they go along, are we ever going to see a limit on on these emergency powers that many have claimed and used um, to such devastating effect, or are they just going to sit there waiting for the next excuse for someone to implement them? Well, I really, I really hope that we will. Um, given the polling numbers that we've been seeing, given the fact that COVID is no longer politically expedient, so we've seen faith in the president and in federal health agencies take a nosedive over the past few months. Um, Biden's approval rating has fallen to new lows. Uh, Real Clear Politics found that a mere 39% of Americans approve of Biden's performance, while 52% strongly approve. And a Kaiser Family Foundation survey found that nearly 70% of respondents are tired or frustrated by the state of the pandemic. So we're seeing these kind of growing pains um, at the end of COVID. And Democrats are preparing for a shellacking in the polls in November of 2022. So, so they're justified in feeling nervous as those elections approach. <laughs> yes. And to that point, uh, Democrats... Uh, as of late January, had lost an astounding 14 polling points in just one year, which is the largest shift in Gallup's 30-year history. So the implications of this for the Democratic Party in the November midterms are are truly devastating. All right. We've got about one minute left. Grace, uh, let's tell people where they can find you on social media, where they can find um, examples of your writing as well. Absolutely, Brian. So you can find all of my pieces at Grace Daily, D-A-L-E-Y, Bidalek, B-Y-D-A-L-E-K, I always have to spell it out, dot com. Um, and my Instagram is at Grace Daily. Okay. And I, I do want to check out your album. Where can I find that? You can also find that on uh, my website. Okay. Uh, it's called Cemetery. And if you can, if you can uh, type it into Spotify, you can also find it there and on Apple Music. All right. Grace, wonderful to catch up with you once again. I hope we get to talk again soon. 
Awesome. Thank you so much, Brian. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. This is our final segment today, and we are happy to welcome Gabriella Hoffman back to the show. Gabriella, you've been a guest on here before, but for the sake of people who may be hearing you for the first time, tell us just a little bit about yourself. Yes, I consider myself a Jill of all trades. I do a lot of things. I do a combination of freelance journalism, commentary writing, media consulting, and content creation. So I do things in front of cameras and even behind cameras to be very multifaceted and well-rounded. And I am obviously a Young Voices contributor, and I just was actually promoted to one of their five first or first initial iteration of the regional leaders program. So I'll be covering the mid-Atlantic and Northeast from March until the end of the year. So really exciting to be moving on up in Young Voices as well and recruit and find more contributors to go through the pipeline and through our program. So it's a very exciting time. I'm still continuing with the Independent Women's Forum. I just published a policy paper, probably my first as a non-college student, and really excited about that to talk about true conservation and the future of environmentalism in the United States. So that just came out recently. So I have my hand in many, many jars And I've been trying to go outdoors amidst my very busy schedule, just finishing off a tour, going to different campuses, talking about gun rights, conservation, environmentalism. So I can't complain. It's been very good. And I try to keep myself busy covering a multitude of subject areas. Well, I follow you on Twitter and I can attest everything she's saying is true. She is very, very busy. I'm glad you're out there representing on gun rights as well. In fact, we're going to be talking about that today. I have your article from the Washington Examiner. Constitutional carry isn't a fringe policy. Tell me the good news. Well, first of all, let's talk about what constitutional carry is. Then I want you to tell me the good news about uh, how it is moving across the states. Absolutely. I think a lot of people, when they hear constitutional carry, they think it's going to convey images of the Wild West and lawlessness and encourage criminals to perpetuate wrongdoing. Permitless carry just means that those who apply for concealed carry permits now don't have to have a permit to carry. What it does is it largely waives the fee. It removes that barrier or that Uh, imposition that was previously there and it makes it easier to be able to carry as it's seen in many states to lawfully carry because it's within your constitutional right to do so and this is only applicable to handguns you largely cannot carry in an open fashion long guns or rifles it's usually frowned upon but this specifically applies to handguns and what a lot of critics of this policy allege is that it's going to lead to no background checks of any gun purchases. Gun purchases and permits or the waiving of carry permits have nothing to do with each other. Gun purchases are still subject to background checks. You still have to go through an FFL dealer. They're still going to process your background check. So this does not affect your purchasing behavior. You still have to submit to a background check. It just makes it so in states where you may have had to subject yourself to a background check or go through a process to obtain a permit. You don't have to do that anymore because different lawmakers and, of course, governors 
determined that this is a barrier to people lawfully ex- exercising their Second Amendment rights. So there's debate over, can we go even further to extend gun rights? Are permit applications a barrier to your right to lawfully and peaceably carry, keep and bear arms? So there's an argument to be made. It's not a fringe policy, obviously, now that as of this recording, while I'm speaking with you, we're waiting about an hour and a half, give or take, until Governor Brian Kemp of Georgia signs his state's version into law, making it the 25th state. So critics saying this is fringe, this is going to lead to a lot of (laughs) violent crime. They're misinformed on the issue, and there's no evidence so far pointing to it. Happy to go through statistics about whether or not this is leading to or will lead to crime and, and what the initial findings are. But so far... It's spreading across the country like wildfire. I think back to 1995, and I can remember when a number of states began to liberalize their concealed carry license requirements. And, of course, the same predictions. It's going to be the Wild West. People will kill each other over parking spaces and so forth. And, you know, first it was concealed carry permits that that swept across the states. But uh, I think someone described that, that licensure as, look... Well, for many people, it seems like a good idea. It doesn't change the fact that essentially it's taking what is an inalienable right and converting it into a privilege that you then pay government for permission to exercise. So I'm very excited to see this. What are some of the other states besides uh, those 25 that have done this that uh, that are also on the cusp of, of making similar adjustments? Nebraska looked to have been adopting this, but the governor... Pete Ricketts announced that even though they have Republican supermajority in their uniparty law or in their uniparty or their singular legislature, they don't have a bicameral legislature. They have a unicameral legislature. But even though it's largely led by Republicans who should be sympathetic to Second Amendment rights, they voted down the measure, I think, in one of the in in the chamber. So it didn't go to his desk. And he was very disappointed in that. So Nebraska was going to be state number 26, but that didn't come to fruition. There's also chatter of Florida potentially looking to move this bill through the legislature there. Governor Ron DeSantis has expressively said he wants to see it come to his desk. He wants to see permitless carry, constitutional carry come to Florida. But again, you're going to have some obstacles from Republicans. I believe in the Florida State Senate, who are probably convinced that this is going to undermine law enforcement. So you even have a little bit of weakness among supposedly Second Amendment supporting Republicans who don't want to see this come because they worry about the loss of revenue that comes from the permitting process. Perhaps they're buying into the rhetoric that it's going to lead to more crime. Maybe they have some personal interest in not seeing it passed. But going forward, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Everyone has asked me if Virginia is going to consider permitless carry. There have been bills that have been proposed, but it hasn't been able to make any movement here in the Commonwealth because we have a divided General Assembly. We have Republicans controlling the House of Delegates. Democrats narrowly controlling the state Senate. And until we see a change, maybe possibly 2023, Governor Youngkin likely won't sign anything into law until he has a majority in both chambers. But Virginia maybe could do this if he does get a majority in the future, but it will be a while. And I don't know what else could happen. I think if we see, let's say, elections, we have a lot of elections coming up in the midterms. Nevada seems very poised to return to pro-Second Amendment majorities all across the board from the top levels of government to their state legislature. I'm not sure if their General Assembly or their equivalent of the state legislature is going to change even there. I think there's a lot of appetite for being pro-Second Amendment there. I think Nevada possibly could. We'll see what happens there. And maybe within a year, we'll see maybe constitutional carry because it's a very 
pro Second Amendment state shot show is held there every year. Oh, yeah. For the most part, except for for one of the initial years of covid. But we have a lot of states and there are a few red states still outstanding. I think South Carolina may be mulling a constitutional carry bill. There are still a few, but not all red states have it, unfortunately, but maybe more will or purple states, too. I say this as someone who's had a valid concealed carry permit for 30 years now. This marks my 30th year of having one. But because of this spread of constitutional carry, um, when my permit expires, and I'm not sure, I think it may expire in July of this year, I won't be renewing it. And and it's because I'm tired of, you know, going to the government hat in hand saying, please, sir, may I? Um, th- there are some benefits that actually come from these permits. Um, right. You know, you can skip the background check as far as paying for a background check. They'll phone it in. But uh, like, for instance, in Utah or Idaho, they just will we'll check and see, is this permit still valid? And if it's pa- if it's valid, you're considered OK to proceed with the purchase. But I've also seen situations, you know, for instance, stopped by law enforcement, you know, for a traffic violation or something where that concealed carry permit actually conveys some goodwill that you're dealing with a law abiding citizen, you know, for having gone through it. So I can understand why some people want it. But I think I've reached the point where I'm ready to embrace constitutional carry. So I'm happy to hear this is this is something that's gaining legs. Yes. Unfortunately, in Virginia, we still have to abide by it. And while if if that option were to come to Virginia, I think there would still be a benefit to it because constitutional carry doesn't supersede your ability to carry in certain states where this may not be available. So you would be able to carry still. So there's still maybe some benefits to having it if you're interested in having it and carrying concealed carry in different states. And I want to be able to have the ability to do it. I think you can maintain both. I think more options, the better. But I think you're going to see even supporters say, yeah, you know, maybe I'll still adhere to the notion of going through it. Maybe we can lower the fee. I think in South Dakota, they I think Governor Nome wanted to waive the fee, even if the option is still available. If you want to conceal carry in states that have reciprocity agreements. So here in the East Coast, we're largely still going to have to have it. Like I said, for the time being, we don't have that policy yet. But I think I would still want to keep it if I wanted to carry in states where there would be permissible behavior to even conceal carry. And we'll see what happens with this New York State Pistol Rifle Association case in the Supreme Court, whether or not May issue may go away and if we'll be able to conceal carry in blue outposts in the Northeast. So maybe the Mm -hmm. concealed carry permit will still come in handy if the Supreme Court rules that you have a constitutional right to carry outside your home. So it may still come in handy. So I'm not fully like opposed to it, but I am open to constitutional carry. I think we should embrace both. Gabrielle, it it is great to catch up with you again. We're talking with Gabriella Hoffman, a Young Voices contributor and, and so much more. Tell people where they can follow you on social media. Follow me everywhere, wherever <laughs> there is a outlet. So Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, easily denoted by a blue check mark. That's where you can find me. I have a, fa- a YouTube channel as well, where I'll be starting to populate more content because of my travels. I haven't been able to, but I have interviews there. Great interviews with some interesting liberty-minded folks. Just recently spoke to Stephen Moore, the economist. 